This week, Chad Skipper and Karen Warstel from VMware are with us to discuss exposing malware in Linux-based cloud environments. Then Dr. Sharon Goldberg from Bastion Zero joins us to talk about putting the zero back in zero trust. Finally, in the enterprise security news, Blue Voyant raises a $250 million Series D to become security's newest unicorn. Baby unicorns. Aw. Balbix raises a $70 million Series C. Scope Security announces a $20 million Series A to specifically focus on monitoring and defense for healthcare. Palo Alto introduces a new product aiming to disrupt the SIM market. Third-party risk management vendors come together to forge the one ring of standards to rule all of cyber. Uh, But less forge and more rubber stamp is the general gist I'm getting. Signal Science founder, former Etsy CISO and honorary Level 80 DevOps wizard Zane Lackey is now a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz. All that and more on this episode of Enterprise Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly, for security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we talk security vendors and aren't afraid to name names. It's Enterprise Security Weekly. Imagine this scenario. You're out of the office unexpectedly, and a colleague pings you because they need access to some system you have credentials for. Now, my listeners would never send passwords over email or Slack. But what about your coworkers? How many organizations out there are sending logins back and forth in plain text? Worse yet, how many just store all of their logins on a shared spreadsheet? Keeper Security's password management platform locks down logins, payment cards, and more in a patented zero-knowledge encrypted vault. Sign up for a Keeper free trial today. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Keeper. Endpoint Security is designed to protect every device in your fleet, wherever it may be. These days, that can be a lot of different places. Find out how HP Wolf Security uses emerging strategies like application isolation, along with a zero-trust approach and framework to give you a powerful, manageable, usable solution to your growing and increasingly spread out security challenges. Learn how HP Wolf Security can make a difference across your endpoints at securityweekly.com forward slash HP Wolf. Welcome to Enterprise Security Weekly and happy National Soup It Forward Day, which I will explain in a moment. This is episode 263, recorded on Thursday, March 3rd, 2022. I'm your host, Adrian Sanabria, and joining me is Katie Teitler. How are you, Katie? I am well. I am interested to understand what the national day is. I'm not quite sure I understand. All right, so soup it forward. Uh, the the idea here is uh, make up your favorite soup and deliver it to someone you know who could use the warmth and of kindness in their life. Make up your favorite soup. And I like it because I just made a huge batch of black bean soup not uh, two days ago. There you go. Somebody at my company posted on our cooking channel a delicious looking ramen recipe. So. That's probably the next soup I will make. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds good. And mixing up our co-host uh, soup here at Security Weekly today, also joining us is Tyler Robinson. How are you, Tyler? I'm good. How are you? Does that mean I'm like the spice to your soup then, or maybe I'm the broth? I don't know. I think it's up for debate. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would definitely, I would say you add flavor. I would say that much. <laughs> All right. Um, one announcement here. 
Don't miss any of your favorite Security Weekly content. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe to subscribe to any of our podcast feeds and have all new episodes downloaded right to your phone. You can also join our mailing list, Discord server, and follow us on social media and our streaming platforms. And just want to add that, um, you know, we, we do stream live on Twitch and YouTube and engagement's always great there. We watch the stuff there. Any uh, likes, subscribes and, and comments on, on our stuff, uh, we, we do check that out and we do respond to that stuff. So feel free to engage if you have any questions or any, any comments on anything you see or hear. All right. Our first interview is sponsored by VMware. Today's topic is exposing malware in Linux-based cloud environments. And we are excited to have not one, but two folks from VMware with us today. Uh, first, Chad Skipper, Global Security Technologist. Hello, Chad. Good day, Adrian. Nice to see you again, my friend. Uh, thanks for having us on again. We uh, look forward to talking about, you know, upticks that we're seeing in the multi-cloud environment relative Linux and uh, all the flavors of uh, different type of attacks called out in this report. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah, me too. And also with us, as, as if you're watching today, you might have noticed, we have Karen. And Karen, I stumbled a little bit on your name. Yeah, I, I wanted to put like a Warstel in there, but <laughs> you tell me how to say your name. Sorry. Karen Warstel. Yeah. You're very you're close. Enough. Yeah. And you are a senior cybersecurity strategist, correct? Yes, with VMware. Yep. Yeah. And so, uh, thank you for inviting us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to this one. So we, we've been looking through the, the research here. Uh, if you go to the show notes for, uh, for today's episode, uh, securityweekly.com forward slash ESW263, uh, you can find a link to this report. And it, not only a report, but uh, I, I was kind of surprised to find malware samples there as well. That's right. Malware samples. We, uh, we were giving you the data sets. So if you go to you know, blogs.vmware.com slash security, right there at the top page is that security report. When you download the report, you have access to the samples um, in which we used, right, to create a confusion matrix is what we've called it, uh, simplistic binary uh, validation, those types of things. So yeah, you can download it uh, via GitHub. So yeah, we're just giving everything away today. Giving us the goods, I like it. Yep. So first off, I understand, uh, Chad, you're here to provide the technical side with, uh, and Karen, you're here to provide kind of the bigger, more zoomed out picture of what's going on here. Uh, so before we dive in, please please give us a bit of each of your backgrounds and what each of you do at VMware. And uh, I'm gonna start with you first, Karen. Sure. Um, I've been at VMware since last July. Um, after a, a career over the last 30 years in cybersecurity, where I held multiple roles as a Chief Information Security Officer, also uh, Research and Engineering. And uh, today, what I really focus on is talking about strategy at the top level. How do we pull all of this together in this super complex world? Um, where to focus our attention where our, uh, and energy and how to take some of the complexity out of the environment so that you know, complexity is the enemy of security. So how do we make that all work together better? And then I rely on all of the great technical information from, from people like Chad and the team um, at VMware to inform us at the detail level. 
Yeah, well said. You know, I, I, I love that you're both here because I love that pairing of like we both need that technical data and then we need someone to, you know, kind of, you know, analyze that and, and, and tell us what it means in plain English. So, uh, Chad, Chad, you can go. You can go next. Absolutely. Thanks, Adrian. Chad Skipper, I've been uh, same as as Karen. You know, I've been in the security industry for almost 30 years now. Started on the network, ended up on the endpoint for a while back at the network, came to VMware through the last line acquisition back in uh, July 2020. Um, you know, my role here at uh, VMware is the global security technologist. So it's connecting the dots between the technologies that we have from a security perspective and really show from an architectural and intelligence um, how we gain that observability and visibility into you know, not just the endpoint, but the network itself as the network is considered the ground truth and how we take all of that and able to provide, you know, security solutions that, you know, stops, you know, these advanced threats and reduces the dwell time. So that's my, that's my core focus here is from a technology standpoint inside of VMware. And I've got to say, you both have very cool backgrounds. I, I love the license plate, Karen, and then the, the Galaga machine over there. Chad, those are great. Yeah. Yeah, you got to have some reprieve sometime during the day. So you just go flip that thing on and take you back to the 80s. Yeah, excellent. Yep. So yeah, l looking at um, this report here, you know, kind of my first question, like we, we, we've seen criminals go after Linux machines before, but it was more, um, it was either very rare or it was in the IoT space. You know, we saw Mirai build a whole botnet um, but it just happened to be Linux. Like it wasn't that they were going after Linux. They were going after these uh, IoT devices with default credentials in them that just happened to be running Linux. So the malware, of course, had to be uh, uh, Linux uh, compiled for, you know, like a dozen different uh, CPU architectures uh, for Linux. So, so I guess my question here, and, and maybe this is a question, uh, you guys decide who this is a question for. I'm, I'm not sure, but why Linux? Why now? I guess is the big question. You want me to, uh, I'll give you my opinion and then, and, and then Chad, do you want to chime in? Yep, not a problem. Um, it's cybercrime has always been a crime of opportunity and uh, the more, you know, windows being a, a target was a product of so much windows in the world. And also, you know, some other factors around, uh, you know, political political, geopolitical issues. Um, we now have like 78% of the websites in the world all run on Linux. So it's a gigantic target um, from an opportunity standpoint. That's right. So, you know, that's that's the main reason of what Karen said is the reason that we focused on this is because, again, Linux is powering, you know, the operating system that is used actually even more on Windows Azure. Right, so Windows Azure, there's there's more Linux uh, in Azure than there are Windows, and we're we've seen this this trickle um, of uh, moving more and more. Not, now it's not Windows is definitely the most targeted, you know, uh, you know operating system, but we're seeing an uptick in uh, the conversion of Windows-based malware into uh, Linux-based malware all the way from you know the initial access the remote access trojans how they gain that persistence and then we're seeing you know this reports calling out you know in the linux environment what are those threat what are we seeing those threat actors do and and number one once they get that persistence you know we're seeing them either a uh, convert or use uh, you know linux ransomware or two 
um, perform some crypto mining activities to monetize right those CPU resources. So that's why we wanted to focus on it um, specifically on what we're seeing from the telemetry, both on the endpoint detection response and the network detection response capabilities that we have in, within VMware. So, so you already you kind of answered my next question, which you know I was going to ask what the payloads were like, what what kind of features we were seeing in this malware, uh, you know what the goal was. But um, you know, so I'll shift a little bit. You, how, how what's the main method uh, attackers are using to get this malware into these environments in the first place? Or it, I, if there is a main method, there there might be multiple. It might be. There, there's, so, so that's great. I'm glad you asked that. There, there are multiple, you know, initial access vectors, right? Just like there is with anything. Um, but, you know, on a Linux side, you know, it's from attack spraying to targeting big and wealthy enterprises, number one. Um, it's now from indiscriminate targeting to targeting where the data is, right? And that's in the data center itself. Um, so you're going from targeting users to targeting the data centers, targeting endpoints to targeting workloads, right? And targeting systems uh, from targeting systems to actually targeting cloud operating systems. So, you know, 35% of the way um, that folks are getting in is either through active scanning and then exploiting. So either way you get in, you exploit, um, you are able to first, and what we're seeing is they first want to become persistent and, and get that remote access Trojan on that endpoint. But uh, there are many different variants in which you can gain that initial access. You know, LDAP, LDAP to pass the hash, those types of things to, to gain access on using credentials on those Linux hosts. Now, there, there isn't a ton of difference from what we're seeing in most of the APT threat actors as far as kind of the initial access, right? Like you still see the common phishing, you still see macros, you still see the zero days through like zero logon, any of the exchange vulnerabilities. All those are just providing the initial access. When you guys are really focusing on some of this telemetry and the targeting of Linux, um, that is typically after that initial access happens. Is that correct? It, it yes and no, right? Um, because I can I can initially access a Linux uh, through a vulnerability, right? Gain root access, do buffer overflow or some such. So they're actively scanning for those open ports and protocols. Um, on the internet, and they're actively going after those from an initial access point. That's one way. Yes, another way is to go after the end user. And from the end user, you're able to pivot, discover, look into your environment, and then pivot and move laterally onto those Linux devices by open ports and protocols, maybe pass the hash, maybe things of getting credentials to that device itself. So it, it's 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 an area of opportunity for the threat, threat, uh, you know, threat actors to, to scan and then figure out which are ways are, are most viable then. Yeah, I think one of the real big things, I'm, I'm curious about some of the telemetry you guys have, have seen, like the report looks fantastic. You're covering a lot of the stuff that, that we're seeing in, and with inside of a lot of these actor groups, so very active in some of the forums. And uh, I'm curious some of the telemetry around uh, hypervisors, the difference between like the on-prem and the cloud and, and what kind of novel attacks are we starting to see against those particular devices where they are a Linux base, um, but they're not maybe a traditional Linux kernel? Yeah, so um, now you're getting into the, to the Windows versus Linux world, right? And so what we see is uh, on a Windows world, you know, we see a lot of user activity. I mean, that's where the users are. In a Linux world, it's a workload of some sort that's running a service. So you're not having a lot of user activity on that. Um, and it's just providing that service. 
you know, and what we're seeing from a threat collection standpoint um, is things like our evil, dark side, black matter, and and they're all relative. You know, they have some similarities, as you called out in in the uh, in the threat report. They have code and stream similarities that we're able to see where these threat actors are taking parts of this and and delivering themselves. As an example, our evil, right? It was uh, you know as a service play, and Darkside said, "Nope, I want to make my own money." So they went and used, created their own Darkside ransomware. And in this report, you'll see a lot of similarities between our evil and, and Darkside. And and then you get over to Hello Kitty. Um, and some older threats, even Erebus and Gunnacry, um, some of the same uh, telemetry that we're seeing relative to strings and how we're able to extract those from an ELF perspective or the binary, and then provide that across family around the, those code similarities. Uh, but right now, you know, the initial access front on that Linux side is, is gain that initial access in whatever means I can, and then deploy those rats, and then what do I want to do? Do I want to monetize this or do I want to ransomware it and maybe do a double extortion strategy and exfiltrate with data at the same time? Yeah, so a quick question, quick question for Karen here. Um, when you talk to companies, how are they responding to these attacks? Are they, are they taking it seriously? Like not necessarily the companies being attacked, but you know, companies who are becoming aware that, that Linux is more targeted here. Are they focusing more on on trying to prevent it or trying to detect it in the first place? Well, you know, we talked about we talk about that assumption of breach, and so they should be doing the threat hunting and using the kind of information that's in the report to look for, um, you know, the, the 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 evidence of of compromise. Um, so there's that aspect of it, but of course. You know, prevention. If we if we could really do prevention uh, and have it be super effective, that would be the place to put all of our efforts. But we know that that's not working. So the the it's a really a two pronged approach. No one can afford any longer to say I'm going to do. You know, I'm going to put my my eggs in the basket of of protection and not ramp up a state of the art capability for incident detection and response. And, um, and, and I think when I say state of the art, uh, even on the most optimistic of numbers, it takes about 56 days for um, an initial intrusion to be detected by the company that's been compromised. And that's a very optimistic number, I think. But the tr truth of it is, is that the damage is all done within 24 to 72 hours. And so we've got to make sure that people understand they've got um, they can't they can't assume that people aren't going to get access because the initial access brokers are out there. They've probably done the work for you. You can just buy it and to get into these environments and then uh, move to establish persistence is something that happens so quickly. We need to have both a very good um, vulnerability management. I would say, uh, and um, hardening uh, cyber hygiene strategy, but maintain the vigilance and really be looking for these active threats in the environment. Don't assume that they're not there. And you mentioned initial access brokers. You know, if you could um, go a little bit deeper on that for folks that that don't know what part that they play on the on the criminal side. Sure. 
Well, to the best of my knowledge, um, the 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 idea that uh, I think it's been over 20 years since we've had the conversations that said there's 100% of the enterprises in this, you know, in the U.S. have been popped already. That's been something that's been in place for such a long time. The idea that that has been done and whether you know it or not, somebody has probably found a way in to get that initial access. And so on the black market, on the dark web, that's all being bartered and traded. And, um, and so if I want to push button, you know, we used to talk about script kitties and that's just kind of really old school now because really what it is is very sophisticated attacks along with the initial access. If I want to go out and purchase that and get that kind of done for me, there is an entire done for you um, uh, business model that sets up these attacks and sends the initial access, whether they gather, gathered it by, you know, credential harvesting or whatever they did to be able to make this access into the environment um, easier. You don't have to go do all of the, you know, front end work anymore. You can just purchase your way in. Did yeah, sorry, Tyler. Yeah, yes, it did. It did very, very well. The uh, done for you market. Uh, I like that. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Tyler, I, I think I cut you off a little bit earlier. I think you had another question for. No, no, that's fine. I, I was just yeah. thinking through like some of the the ransoms that we're seeing and the scale at which some of these actors are playing. When we start talking mm -hmm. about Linux, what actually runs on Linux, you get into some really scary scenarios with. Uh, the hypervisor on cloud or even hypervisor on hypervisors with inside of uh, cloud environments that are managing, you know, large SaaS application, critical business applications, uh, even with inside of environments, the SXI servers or clusters, those are all where data stores live and, and critical servers typically live uh, for that data. So uh, are you guys typically seeing them access those directly through the Linux systems or are you seeing things like hypervisors being abused in order to grab uh, VMDKs or data store sets and, and exfilling those on like um, ESXi CLI? Yeah, it's a great question. We're seeing more right, right now with the data that I'm seeing is more across the operating system than within the hypervisor itself, right? And in fact, you know, a, a little bit of where VMware is placed, we're actually placed within the hypervisor uh, across, across the operating system. So, within the NSX, within the virtual cloud framework that VMware has, um, we, we instantiate within that hypervisor, which allows us to see all the traffic north, south, and east, west within that organization. And, you know, what we do is two approaches here because one approach alone is insufficient when it comes to detecting, you know, malware of this, this type, right? One is static analysis, right? The static analysis known, right? We can statically analyze an ELF, you know, file um, and extracts that analyze that it extracts an understanding and analyzing that one binary. Right now, what happens? What happens if it's packed? Well, of course, static analysis is going to fail, and so that's why we can unpack that through our dynamic analysis, which is you know, um, you know, ability to run that binary in a controlled environment. Right, so bring up a controlled environment um, and run that binary, and having a full system emulated. Um, uh, you know, sandbox environment that emulates the OS, the CPU, and the memory, that's when we begin to interact with that malware. And that's where we begin to see similarities 
across the code and the strings um, and we're able to classify these even unknowns as a variant of a family that we've seen before. But to, to, to bring this back around, you know, to answer your question, we're seeing more of the operating scene, more trying to, you know, want monetize from, uh, you know, from uh, crypto miners or using some type of ransomware technique to, to, to get them to pay Bitcoin or, or whatever else that they want to do. Does that help? Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, Katie. Um, yeah, if you wanted to, I, I think you had a question uh, around demographics. Absolutely. So in the report, you talk about the different types of malware that are out there. Are there certain geographies you're seeing targeted or certain geographies that or industries that see ransomware versus implants versus uh, other things what what does it look like what does the distribution look like when you're looking for large-scale trends and patterns so i'll take a i'll take a first shot at that um you know what we've looked at from a tau perspective a vmware threat analysis unit perspective was really focused on the malware itself. We collected it from every single industry that was out there. We did. We weren't industry specific in this case, like our evil or dark side has a tendency to do telecommunications or energy or whatever that might be. We really focused on what is that malware that is really, you know, uh, targeting a, a Linux environment, didn't matter what kind, but, but, but that Linux environment. And, you know, uh, from... You know, uh, dark side, as an example, uh, we're seeing things, uh, organizations across North America and Europe, you know, as an example, the colonial pop line from a dark side perspective, right? And we're seeing that move into targeting, you know, ESXi um, relative to those those Linux variants. So that that's one example that, that we see. Black matter, um, you know, uh, you know, Black Matter made sure to publicly announce that they were not targeting specific verticals, right? Such as mm -hmm. healthcare, oil, gas, and government and critical infrastructure um, companies, right? Um, you know, so they're trying to give off this, uh, you know, aura of we're only going to focus on certain industries or we're not going to focus on others. But we didn't really want to take an approach of what was happening in the financial sector, what was happening in the healthcare sector. We really want to have a blanket understanding of, of, of the Linux variants of, of the rats, as well as the ransomware and the crypto miners. Sure, that, make, that makes sense. I can add a, a little bit to that. And part of it is, um, I like to play the exercise of if I were a bad guy, what would I be wanting to accomplish? And I think that there's different there's different targets for different goals. So if I'm trying to basically disrupt social cohesion and create overall chaos, um, I'm going to go after a, uh, a certain set of industries that are most likely to cause uh, primary disruption to the population, right? If I am going after really big game, I'm gonna be targeting financial services. Um, or I may be targeting the federal sector. So the, the, it really is a, a motivation-based uh, kind of, a, of, of an exercise where it used to be way more peanut butter than it is now. Um, at the same time, um, I think we also have to look very carefully at supply chain because if I were the bad guy, the thing that I would really do is to corrupt 
the supply chain to such a degree that no one could trust the communications that are coming from their trading partners that through it through digital channels and that is the avenue by which these attacks are being spread so rapidly because um not just for you know linux in particular but if i'm working on um uh if i'm working on a particular target i'm going to go out to their secondary connections and their their tertiary connections and work my way through the supply chain so i look like a completely trusted entity that gives me access both to you know the initial the initial access but also through the capability of living off the land um within those environments until i can springboard to my next victim and i think that's the thing we really have to pay attention to um that uh well there there's there's plenty of of opportunity now with sleeper cells throughout the environment that that's something that we're going to have to be aware that that supply chain is not trusted and that's an a very common avenue for entry wouldn't that Absolutely. wouldn't that um that motivation also be a, a pretty good indicator of either a misinformation campaign or you know whether it's a nation state versus someone like a, a ransomware gang after monetary things whether that's disruption or chaos so, or monetary values and that supply chain i mean we are already starting to see that where that you know that double extortions happen maybe even triple extortions happen now we're starting to see the information gleaned from the networks that have been extorted whether they paid or not they're making their pivots to their secondary and uh, third level targets of the supply chain or trusted vendors that's that's where those uh, those connections are now going to become important the big the big fish have been fried and we're looking at a lot of the second and third levels it's going to be very yeah. interesting how that plays out yeah yeah you you mentioned triple extortion absolutely you know we've talked about double extortion triple extortion you know use and abuse of stolen data from your suppliers and, and, and that's just another way, which Karen was talking about, is everybody has third-party suppliers, right? So, you know, you might have a strong defense relative to your proper ecosystem, but when you're letting in others, you know, you got to understand that supply chain. And absolutely, that's where we're seeing a lot of you know, triple extortion come in via, via data stolen from, from, from your own suppliers. Yeah, and... and um yeah, I, I think that's a great point, you know, because it's, um, you know, and for people who don't don't know, you know, uh, when you get into double and triple ransom, basically you're using the same data you steal uh, to extort not only the victim, but the victim's employees or the victim's partners or the victim's friends. <laughs> basically, a bunch of people are potentially uh, hurt by that data becoming public uh, or not being able to recover that data, you know, so they, they can... Uh, now, I've got I've got proprietary information of communications between you and contractor A. I'm going to go and export contractor A because they might not want that released, right? So uh, yeah, it's it it gets to where it has a uh, you know uh, a lot of tentacles in in a way in which they can begin to extort data if they know how to attribute it back to certain sources such as third party suppliers. Yeah. So as we wrap here, as as we wrap our conversation. Um, Karen and Chad, do, do you have any, uh, is, is there any easy advice that you can give, you know, what, what should people be, be focusing on? Like, is it, is it really just back to fundamentals or, you know, is there, 
something that you, you see the bulk of people out there missing. I mean, the thing that I think concerns me most about what you're talking about is how, you know, after attackers get in, how, how do you how do you tell an attacker who's stolen admin access uh, or who comes in as a third party from an admin, you know, a legitimate admin or a third party? You know, what what, what should people be looking out for here, and what what should they be be doing? Um, I would I would venture and offer that um, in order for us to be fully equipped against the adversaries that are coming after us. Um, it's very important to have a very a very robust capability. And if you're not at the point where you can build that out internally, then by all means, go hire a trusted resource who's going to be able to do that as a managed service for you. But when, and what I'm talking about is the ability to um, do the vulnerability management and do an, ec- an excellent job of vulnerability management within your environment. Number one, that's kind of basic blocking and tackling. The second thing, though, is to understand how these um, attacks and how and how they work, and how we can detect them. What are the what are the things that are going to tip us off that something is underway? And and uh, it's always it's sometimes the littlest thing that we can basically see. This is a this is, does not look right. This is something, you know, it's the 69 cent accounting error that Clifford still talked about Mm, years and years ago, right? It's little stuff often, but we need to have the capability that says, I'm going to follow this thread and we're going to see if this really amounts to anything. And usually, you know, that's a fairly sophisticated capability, but I think that it's the time is here to invest in that. Um, We cannot any longer pretend that we are going to operate with a hard crunchy outside in a soft chewy center it does not work (laughs) yeah and i will add to that karen you're absolutely correct you know hygiene so let's get the hygiene there for sure but i would i would argue that as well as as observability right you you can't see it you can't protect it right and that's the challenge that we see in the multi-cloud environment especially attacking the linux and linux infrastructure so you've got to be able to, to see what's happening, both things that are ingress, egress coming into that multi-cloud environment. But more importantly, once they're in, a lot of customers have no idea what they're doing once they're inside the network. So that's that observability of east-west, things like you know network traffic analysis, looking at anomalies, right, of workloads or users or you know services. Um, acting abnormally, right? The ability to uh, ferret out threat actors inside your organization that might put rats on multiple systems and then start doing command and control east-west, right? You've got to have that that visibility because once they're in, we all know, we've all seen the stats, they're in there for 200 plus days. And so the challenge here is that observability within your ecosystem east-west to really understand once that threat actor is inside, what in the world are they doing? Right, so that's my that's my take on that is 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 to get there as quickly as possible. Well, Chad and Karen, oh. a- excellent advice, excellent insights. I'm sorry, Karen, did you have something to I add? I just want to I just want to plus one the hygiene, like you yeah. you the, the foundation for building that state of the art capability starts there, and yep. understanding you know the observability the observ- observability. <laughs> 
Hard work. Well, all the different parts of your environment. I the thing that I run into so often over the over the years are companies who don't even know what they have and they don't yeah. know where it's at. So, you know, there's just some real fundamentals that companies can do to get themselves positioned to do this much better than we've been doing it in the past. And it starts with cyber hygiene. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times as a pen tester and even as a PCI QSA, you know, I, I, I you know, be going through the findings with the client and, and realize that, you know, maybe I know they're, you know, after these 20, 40 hours, how long, however long the engagement was, you know, how is it that I know their environment better than they do? Or I know about stuff that they didn't realize was there. And it's it's often because that's just not that wasn't part of their routine. That was, wasn't part of their uh, mission to know the environment that well. They were kind of stuck in this uh, in this um, you know form of thinking that uh, you know I only interact with my systems when something breaks. You know when somebody complains about something not working right. Yeah, I, I think it's a great place to end it though. Uh, but again, Chad. And, and Karen, thank you so much. Uh, excellent insights. Uh, great research here. Uh, you know, again, for anybody listening or watching, the link is in the show notes today. You can go to securityweekly.com forward slash ESW263. Uh, you can also go to securityweekly.com forward slash VMware to learn more there. Um, thank, thanks again for all that, uh, Karen and Chad. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thanks, Adrian. Thank you so much. And stay tuned. When we come back, we're going to talk putting the zero back in zero trust with Dr. Sharon Goldberg from Bastion Zero. Workloads protected by VMware are the safest workloads in the multi-cloud. Private cloud, public cloud, any cloud. Stronger with distributed protection to the API and everything east-west, inside and cross-cloud. Stronger with three layers of detection, trusting nothing and seeing everything, even the best hidden bad actors. Stronger with an SE Labs AAA certified advanced NDR that brings the multi-cloud together for the win. You've got workloads, we've got security. VMware security, simply stronger. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash VMware to learn more. Attackers are only getting more proficient, so how can you proactively adapt your cybersecurity strategy? Core Security by Help Systems helps you uncover and prioritize the risks that pose the biggest threat to your organization. Core Impact is a penetration testing tool that safely finds and exploits vulnerabilities using the same techniques as attackers. You can conduct advanced pen tests with ease using certified exploits and automations. Take your engagements to the next level by pairing with Cobalt Strike, a threat emulation tool ideal for adversary simulations and red team operations. Learn more at securityweekly.com forward slash core security. Welcome back to Enterprise Security Weekly. Do you have a specific guest or topic that you want us to cover in one of the shows? Submit your suggestions for guests by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash guests and completing the form. We review suggestions monthly and we'll reach out to you once reviewed. All right, for our second interview today, we are talking to Dr. Sharon Goldberg about putting the zero back in zero trust. I know what you're thinking, Ugh, zero trust, pass, but it'll be a fun chat, I promise. And Sharon has quite the CV. She is a tenured professor at Boston University and has published nearly three dozen peer-reviewed papers. She can go deep on security related to BGP, DNS, NTP, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and crypt cryptography standards. So it tickled me that we have a rare expert here uh, on Security Weekly uh, that can talk about both kinds of crypto. 
And uh, and Tyler, you're forbidden uh, for jumping into cryptocurrency stuff because that's not the topic for today. That that would take up the whole show. <laughs> but well, welcome to the show, Sharon. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, yeah. Really, really excited about this conversation since we uh, chatted before the show. Um, you know, you've worked on some fascinating stuff. So, so maybe, uh, you know, we can kind of start there with, with a bit of your background, how you came to, uh, you know, be, be founding uh, Bastion Zero, you know, a company focused on, on Zero Trust. Yeah, so, um, so as you mentioned, I'm a professor at BU. I actually started my career quite a long time ago. I was a telecom engineer at a power company. That was my first job. Um, and then I went and did my PhD. And during my PhD, I discovered cryptography. But I was actually not a very good cryptographer because at that time, I guess almost 15, 17 years ago, um, cryptographers were theoretical computer scientists and I'm really an engineer. So I ended up be kind of getting into infrastructure security kind of early. Um, and that's why I've worked on BGP, NTP, DNS, all the core internet protocols from a cryptographic point of view. So that's kind of where I come from, um, from academia, but really um, focused on the internet's plumbing. What happened was after I got tenure, I started getting interested in cryptocurrency and working on stuff related to Bitcoin and Ethereum. And then um, I actually started a blockchain company. And then what happened was COVID actually hit. And when COVID hit, we had a lot of problems. And so what happened then was we actually founded Bastion Zero out of the ashes of our cryptocurrency company. And that's where we are today. Um, and so, yes, I am like both crypto means cryptography and crypto means cryptocurrency. I, I guess I would say both. I'm more on the crypto means cryptography uh, side of the house right now. Um, and I guess like the, the way to think about what we're doing at Bashi Zero is we're taking some of these ideas that are so common in, um, in cryptography and cryptocurrency and really bringing them into the cloud security space in a way that hasn't really been done. And I'll just make it very, very simple. Like in... Uh, the world I come from, it's very unusual to kind of put all your keys in one place, like put them all in one database or in one SaaS or in one like, you know, a hardware token or something like this. The idea is like just spread apart your, 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 your sensitive credentials across many different locations. Um, and it's very unusual to actually see that type of architecture in the cloud security world. And so that's actually what we're building at Bastion Zero, like a way of managing um, access and credentials that doesn't rely on putting everything in one single point of compromise, one single trusted authority that, that attackers can go after. And that's actually what our cryptocurrency company was doing way back. Um, we just kind of moved the technology into an, another industry that we were really more familiar with. So that's the founding when say, story. When you say credentials, are, are you talking about like single sign-on or OAuth or SAML tokens? Like kind of, kind of what's the, the details around like how that's happening? Yeah, so uh, I am actually talking about SSO um, and um, and OpenID Connect and SAML and all those things that you mentioned. So, so basically, the specific thing that Bastion Zero is focused on is um, infrastructure access. So, how do people gain access into your infrastructure? Those people being your engineers, not adversaries, but the actual employees of the company. You know. Um, I remember in the last segment you were talking about no, not having a hard, crunchy outside and a soft, chewy center to your infrastructure. That's exactly the, where we're focused. Like when your engineers need to get into a Linux server or into a Kubernetes cluster or into a database because something has happened, how do they get in? 
And how do you make sure that that vector of entry, which is supposed to be there for your actual engineering team to use, how do you make sure that vector of entry doesn't become a disaster that causes your whole infrastructure to get owned? That's where we're um, sitting. A lot of companies today do that with single sign-on, right? And so what we're saying at Bastion Zero is like single sign-on is great, but you really don't want to have a single point of compromise where your SSO provider kind of, if it gets owned, your whole network gets owned, your whole infrastructure gets owned. How do you build a system that's not so sensitive to the party that's authorizing people to actually access the, the, the infrastructure? That's pretty awesome. Are you guys also handling that for like proxying the connections or API key management, the other things that, you know, typical cloud infrastructure mistakes are, are kind of uh, crumbling at? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the way to think about this is if you have a cloud, uh, if you have cloud infrastructure and you have all these uh, SSH keys that your engineers are using, to access servers, you have maybe Kubernetes credentials, maybe you have long-lived IAM roles that people have. We come in and we eliminate all of that human-managed, uh, the, the, all the, all the um, credentials that humans need to have in order to access the infrastructure. And we replace that with our access system, which actually allows you to close all the ports. Um, no more SSH ports open, no more VPN ports open, take your Kubernetes APIs off the internet, kind of close all those ports um, and have all those credentials be issued um, ephemerally, like sort of when someone logs in, so they're not sitting around in your machine where they can get stolen. Um, but, uh, you know, the next step is to take it like to the level you're describing, which is like when one machine talks to the other, you want to make sure that you're also controlling that access. And we don't do that right now, but that is actually something we're working on um, this year, but we don't have that kind of support. So ultimately what you want to have is you want to have sort of a framework where like, if anyone is talking to a machine, they're going through a very controlled you know, uh, authentication, policy check, logging, and then only then can they have access rather than just kind of like handing out SSH keys and letting people use them or handing out VPN credentials and letting people use them. I, I normally have to ask a bunch of questions to tease out all those details, but um, <laughs> I, I, I think you, you've answered almost every question I was going to ask. So I think we're done now. <laughs> okay, good. So thanks everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I have more yeah, to say. No, that, yeah, that, that I, I mean, yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm somewhat joking. Um, no, I, I, I appreciate that, that, um, that, that you hit all those points so quickly because that, that is the, I think it is important for people to understand, you know, that, that there, there is an option to not have ports hanging out on the public internet, you know, that can just be uh, brute forced and. Uh, and uh, and beat up. I mean, it, we've seen just so much low hanging fruit taken advantage of, you know, whether it's uh, MongoDB or Redis or, you know, just SSH all over the place, you know, and, and nobody monitoring that stuff that, you know, when I first saw, you know, I still think of this stuff kind of as software defined perimeter, you know, which is kind of an old, uh, I think Vitter came up with that term maybe uh, in some of the the early work that they did, you know, but now it's, I don't know how how would you categorize how does Gartner Gartner categorize you? They don't. Um, oh, we don't fit into good. a category right <laughs> now. So it, it's actually it's interesting. Um, we actually just announced our financing today, and my my quote that's kind of made the rounds is like, I think we're part of a new category that combines VPNs, bastion hosts, and privilege access management. So that's my answer to that question. So we do a lot of things that like a PAM would do, like something like a CyberArk mm. would do. 
Um, but um, it's also, you know, we also actually do the, the access control, like how do you actually connect into the targets? So it's kind of a combination of like a VPN replacement and a PAM, uh, where the idea is like PAMs usually, privilege access management usually controls like who has access to the admin credentials on this machine, right? Um, and VPN controls like how do you get into the network? We kind of do both. So it's like you specify that I should have access to admin on this specific machine and Bastion Zero will facilitate that connection. And there's actually like kind of a growing class of products that do this. And the reason that this is cool is actually partially because of the um, the issue of open ports like you were describing, because um, like kind of the modern way of, of, of dealing with connectivity into infrastructure is actually not to have users like dialing into the targets like I should not be making an incoming connection to a Linux machine the Linux machine should actually have all its ports closed but I should still be able to get in and the way you actually build a system like that is to actually have a Linux the Linux machine connect into some sort of cloud um, service or some sort of other service and then have the users connect into that same service and the service in the middle patching together the connection and that way you can have all the ports closed um, and so that service kind of is the only place that these that these Linux machines are talking to, right? And then that way you can avoid a lot of the like wonderful stuff we've seen with crypto jacking on SSH ports and like the RDP, all the RDP infiltration attacks that we've seen because those ports are just closed, right? All those machines are just talking to like one specific place on the internet and that's what's facilitating facilitating access to them. And all so that attack surface goes away. <laughs> Go ahead, Katie. I was just going to say congratulations on the funding. That's wonderful. Um, who, what kinds of companies are you targeting? Who are the early adopters of this? Like you said, it sort of merges a couple of categories and, and our listeners, everybody sort of, it's human nature to want to lump technologies together. But who are you seeing both in terms of types of companies as well as who within the company is generally most interested and, and is an early adopter of your solution? Yeah, so I, I have a bunch of POCs live right now that I can't talk about, but the, the, there is a list of companies and customers we have on our on our website right now that I can mention, which include AppQs, um, Payde, which is a, a fintech that was recently bought by um, PayPal, and a couple of others. Um, but I will say that it's been very interesting. I'm a, I'm a startup CEO now. I kind of run sales for my company. As you know, I'm really a technologist. I'm not a salesperson at all. Um, but what's really interesting is that we made the decision to actually go after younger companies that are smaller um, because what we saw was when we went into the bigger enterprises that were you know around 15, 20 years and there was like big teams um, the technology stack looked completely different than what it looked like at a younger organization. And so we wanted to be working with teams that had sort of a more modern infrastructure, like using Kubernetes or using Linux and not using Windows and RDP, um, you know, the type of databases that, that a younger organization uses versus an older organization. It's just, it's just a choice that we made because we can't really build everything. Um, uh, with our product, you know, the, the idea is that we're controlling access directly into specific roles on the target. So, you know, uh, an account on a Linux machine or a role on a Kubernetes cluster or an account on a database, right? So we kind of have to build all those pieces. So we have to be really picky about like what type of technology stacks we're building for. So that's what we're doing specifically at Bastion Zero right now. Um, and it allows us to kind of like pull together 
um, pull together like VPNs and PAMs because these small organizations generally don't use PAMs. Like they don't even know what a PAM is for the most part. So this is all kind of like new and cool for them to be able to have, but they do know what a VPN is, right? I will say though, that I think that this type of problem exists across all sorts of companies. Um, you know, one of the reasons that we're having this conversation is because the federal government put out a memo around their transition to zero trust. And a lot of what we're doing fits like directly into that memo. Uh, our customers are not the federal government. I don't know if they ever will be because of FedRAMP and all kinds of things that one has to do in order to work with the federal government. But I think it sort of applies across the stack. Um, maybe another way of looking at, at what we're doing now is like the idea of privilege access management, like the future version of this just trickle down into a more manageable tool that kind of is easier to deploy and buy, right? Because privilege access management is quite a heavy thing and a lot of organizations don't have it, right? Katie? Excellent. No, no more questions. That was, that was a great <laughs> overview. Thank you. I, I am kind of curious around the, the single point of entry, like cl closing down your, your footprint makes it really difficult for attackers. Like what you're doing is exactly like how we fix a lot of the issues we have. What are some of the security measures and, and things that will have to be put in place in order to protect that single point of entry? I mean, we, we probably already commonly have, you know, the MFA, we've got uh, different levels of, you know, API access and, and uh, control as well as maybe conditional access, IP space, like what, what kind of protections are you guys putting around that, that entry point? So that is like such a great question because like if you think about the architecture I described, I described all of these machines on this side attaching to some sort of point of entry and then all of these humans on the other side attaching to that same point of entry. So if you look at that, and that point of entry would be right here, that is a pretty powerful um, thing, right? That point of entry has a lot of control over what happens to your systems. And if you think about your own cloud architectures right now, um, you know, that may be like examples of such a point of entry could be a bastion host, right? It could be my company's cloud service. It could be some other tool you put in place. But that entry point is a really big deal. It's a big security risk because everything goes right through it. And actually, you have to sort of, that is really where actually we focused all of our cryptographic energy. I mentioned that, you know, we have a, like my team and I, uh, my co-founder and I met at BU, where he also has a PhD in, in cryptography and information security. All of my engineers are like half of them have taken my class, taken crypto at BU. And we're all sort of out of BU, right? We're very actually worried about that point of entry and what kind of risks it creates for, for, for customers. Um, the trend in the industry right now is basically to put that point of entry in a cloud service and then get a SOC 2 certification or an ISO certification, provide that to your customers, and then tell them to just trust you. That is what most vendors do. That is not what we do, even though we do have the SOC 2 certification. We say that actually our cloud service, which is going to be that point of entry into all of your infrastructure, our cloud service actually cannot compromise your targets. And we did a lot of work to make this possible. The way we do this is we have this notion of um, multiple routes of trust. So instead of just trusting our cloud service to decide like which human can access which target, um, we actually have more than one route of trust that's participating in that decision. And in particular with Bastion Zero, 
it's a combination of our cloud service and your SSO provider. So if you use G Suite, if you use Azure AD, if you use Okta, whatever it is, will integrate against your um, identity provider and actually targets themselves, like your Linux boxes, your clusters, your databases, they'll be checking against that identity provider to make sure that whoever's trying to get into your to that to that target really should be allowed to get in. And so to make a long story short, you need the combination of our cloud service and, um, and the identity provider to both agree before a human can actually access a target, right? And so in that way, if our cloud service is hacked, um, as long as let's say your Okta isn't hacked, then the target still won't accept the connection. We actually don't have the ability to access targets without a valid user logging in. And so there's all this crypto that we built to actually accomplish this. Um, and that's why like, when we were talking about the name of the segment, we talked about like putting the zero back to zero trust, right? Like the majority of solutions that talk about zero trust infrastructure access or zero trust anything, they have some sort of point of entry that's making all the decisions, right? So it's not really zero trust, it's like 100% trust in that point of entry. And what we wanted to do was like build a system that did have a point of entry, but you didn't have to trust it 100%. You could have a compromise of the point of entry and not have the security of the whole system fall apart. And that's what we did at Bastion Zero. And it was really interesting. I guess the last thing I'll say is like, because we're all geeks and cryptographers, we really wanted to build this. We weren't really sure if anyone would care in the market, but we decided to build it anyway, because that's what you do when you're a startup. And it turns out that people actually do care. So I'm very happy about that. But we didn't know, we didn't know that that was how it was going to go when we started, when we started building this thing. Yeah, no, that, that is a constant conversation that I see in, in some of the chats that I have with uh, CISOs and I see CISOs having with each other. Um, you know, th third-party risk management is, is just such a huge, uh, you know, weighty problem. And, uh, you know, it used to be, I, I think there maybe was a period when they're like, you know, okay, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll trust uh, an AWS service or something like that. And, and people realized, you know, that there was some shared responsibility there. Um, but certainly for something like this, you know, when you're, you know, potentially a man in the middle target, uh, like I, I've seen some vendors entirely like avoid the, you know, putting this kind of technology into their product, you know, and try and find ways around it to where maybe the customer runs it on their end or something like that, where they, they just do not want to be, they don't want to tackle this problem. They want to, don't want to be that product. So it's cool to see that, that, you know, you not only accepted the challenge, you know, but but uh, turned it into a product as well. I mean, I have so, I have so much to say about this because it, it's very interesting because one of the ways that people mitigated this risk, right? Like everybody is concerned. If you have a point of entry into your infrastructure, that point of entry is got to be highly secure, right? We've always had these architectures in cloud security. They're called bastion hosts. They're called jump hosts. If you go read like some of these compliance frameworks that I'm sure like lots of your listeners have read, they actually require you to have bastion hosts in certain situations, right? So we are like very familiar of this point of entry that can become a single point of compromise. And so like what's happened in the industry has been like one of two things. One is people will say, I'm going to self-host this thing, right? Because I want to own all the risk myself. I don't want to be reliant on a third party vendor. I don't know what they're doing maybe they're not secure enough, I'm going to host it myself, right? Or even go even further, like I'm going to build it from scratch myself, right? And that's what happened for the last, I don't know what, 15 years, right? Um, what happened though, 
like building that thing yourself is nice, but it starts to get really complicated. And then, you know, you may end up like in that thing that you've self-hosted or built yourself. Maybe you have a certificate authority that controls access to all of your targets. And if you know, you're probably familiar with certificate authorities, they have one signing key so that if you steal that signing key, you can impersonate the certificate authority and basically issue tokens for anything you want, right? So hosting a, self, a certificate authority yourself is really scary, right? Um, and so people thought, okay, you know what? This is scary. Let's do it in a, in a SaaS. Maybe someone else can manage the risk for me better. And so people are kind of given this choice, right? Of like, am I going to host it myself and take on all the risk myself? And like, I believe that I can handle all this risk. Or do I want to give it to a third-party vendor and like just trust them to do it? Right. And that that's been the choice. Right. And what we're saying is like, no, don't make that choice. Like give it to a third party vendor, but you don't have to trust us fully with the risk because we've created a second root of trust, which is Okta or which is G Suite or whatever you're using for um, identity management, uh, identity providing um, that we don't control and you don't control. And now you've sort of distributed the risk, you know, from one third party vendor to another. Uh, to two, to if, from yourself, from one third, third party vendor to like this architecture where you have these two different places that your adversary has to attack in order to actually own your infrastructure. Um, so yeah, that's what's new. And that's what I was so excited about, like building this company, because when we, when we started building it, like there's not much like this in um, cloud security. Um, for those of you who are familiar with cryptocurrency, there's tons of stuff like this in cryptocurrency. If you look at um, what's called multi-sigs or multi-signatures in, in, in any sort of blockchain protocol. This is a really common architecture in that industry, but like super uncommon in the cloud security industry. So we thought that was like a really interesting opportunity. And that's, that's sort of how this whole thing started. Yeah, it, it's a great background, great story. And um, I, I just want to check with you on time. You know, I, I want to make sure that, uh, you know, we, we let you go before you have to really be somewhere, but I, I do want to, touch on that White House memo as well. Let's go. Yeah, I'm good. Okay. Um, yeah, so, you know, so backing up a bit, you know, I, I think I first became aware of Bastion Zero because, you know, that White House memo came out and, it, I mean, they're better than they used to be, but nobody really wants to read a, a White House memo word for word. Uh, but but you, you did it for us. That post went viral. I, I saw it and read it. In fact, I, I didn't realize I didn't put two and two together until we were preparing for this uh, this interview, and then I realized, oh, y you're that uh, author of, of that post that I read. So I put those two together. But um, but yeah, you know, I think I think what really struck me, you know, talking about them being better than they used to be, what really struck me is kind of how bold and uh, you know, I think a a, a bit more. Um, you know, like emerging tech almost leaning that way more than like, like you know, we expect the federal gov government to be kind of on the laggard side of, uh, of uh, new tech of technology in general. So, um, you know, I feel you, you had a similar impression. It seemed like. Yeah, I, I was, I was like, honestly, I was blown away while I was reading it. I was sitting there and I was like in my living room, it was like 6 PM. There was so much noise. Everyone was like making noise. And I was like, I cannot believe what I'm reading here. Cause it was so, um, it was so far beyond, like I spend all my day talking to cloud security people. That's like all I do. And it was like more, it was further beyond what I saw, even the best teams at sort of like the most advanced organizations. Like it, it was, it was kind of where those teams were not even the like a minus, but the a or the a plus, um, uh, the a plus teams. And, and there were a couple of things in there that like blew me away. So first thing 
is it starts with um, the federal government can no longer depend on perimeter-based defenses. And then it kind of goes and starts tearing up VPNs all the way through uh, the memo. At one point, it even says that um, internal applications should be accessible over the public internet um, or something like this, I'm paraphrasing. But what, what that means is like, don't put your intranet applications intranet behind the VPN, just put them on the internet. Um, and make sure that the security of those applications is good enough so that they can be on the public internet. Um, so that's really interesting, right? Like they're, they're really coming out strongly against VPNs and there's this sort of theme in there that they talk about, which is like, don't log into networks, log into targets. So network-based authentication or like IP-based decision-making is no longer good enough. They really wanna see people and, and agencies like controlling access to individual applications, individual targets. Um, and then when I saw that, I was like, wow, like this is what we're doing at Bastion Zero. And I'm still talking, you know, I'm still having conversations with people who have VPNs and they're telling me, well, I have a VPN, so it's all good. And like, here's this, and it, it, you know, maybe it is, but here's this memo that's like completely what the, what I've been trying to like, you know, talk about for the last two years. And, and there it is from the federal government. So within like four hours, I'd written this blog post and there's all kinds of other stuff in the blog post, but I was just so excited when I was writing it and finished it at like 11 p.m. And then it went viral the next morning. Yeah, that, that, I mean, all the bl best blog posts, I think, are written like that, you know, just in the, this fire of passion of just, oh, my God. And, um, yeah, I know I've written a few like that, you know, and, and uh, yeah, the timing was perfect. When you got it out, everybody was just kind of like, Ugh. you know, I, I, I don't want to read <laughs> yet another executive order after the, the huge one they released uh, last year, which was uh, – you know, I, th I think had eight or nine sections, but I certainly get the impression that, you know, some, there are some smart folks at CISA, some smart folks at the white house that realize that like a baby step approach to improving security, uh, at least in the federal space, uh, just, it, it isn't going to get them anywhere. You know, there, there's, there's no value in doing that. So you know, I, w I was kind of on the fence wondering like, like, you know, is this really smart or is it almost borderline naive to think that, any government agencies can make this big of a leap. Yeah, it's it's, it's going to be hard. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there that's very, very hard to do and to build. So like um, moving away from VPNs and having all your applications uh, have their own authentication system, you know, it mandates the use of single sign-on pretty much for everything. It, um, it requires multi-factor authentication to be turned on for a lot of things, which, you know, is like a normal thing to do these days, except... It also says that um, TOTP authentication, like, you know, the, the codes that you get from your phone, mm -hmm. that's actually not good enough. They want to see hardware keys. So they've deprecated TOTP, which is really the state of the art right now in most organizations. They're saying, no, we're going to use hardware keys for MFA. Um, the other thing they said, which was like really uh, goes beyond what most organizations do right now, they, they want to see a device context. So they want to know that like you've logged in from a laptop that they recognize and not from something you've, they've never seen. Um, that means that you have to manage your endpoint devices, which is really hard for most orgs to do and like even more hard when everyone's remote and all over the place. Um, so, so, you know, th there's like a lot of stuff in there that goes like one step beyond what most organizations do. I would say that most organizations have MFA um, turned on in most places, but not necessarily with hardware keys, right? And, and most organizations do have like logins to things, but is everything behind single sign-on? 
Not always, right? So there's there's like a bunch of things in there. And then it goes even one step further where it starts talking about sending like your DNS traffic should be encrypted. Like you can't even do that on AWS today, right? So it's like things that just don't even necessarily exist from, from in the vendor ecosystem right now. They're sort of like mandating. And, and I think what they're trying to do with that type of thing is really force vendors and cloud providers to start building out like some of these security protocols that they've been on this on the fence for for a while, like like encrypted DNS and things like that. Yeah, it, I, I think your timing is perfect too, because uh, again, some of the conversations I'm hearing, uh, you know, on the enterprise side, is that MFA is is pretty easy for them on the um, the employee side, you know, the the you know, internal applications. Uh, SaaS application stuff like that is is pretty easy to to enforce and to turn on, but where they're really struggling is more with the admin side of things. You know, the the infrastructure, even infrastructure to infrastructure communication, and then you know administrators uh, working with uh, with infrastructure. You know, is is one of the places that they're they're really struggling with multi factor, and you know they they end up having gaps and stuff like that in their uh, access to things. Yeah, it's not like a, a switch you can pull. There's usually some sort of infrastructure you have to build or you have to build some sort of tooling of yourself or use a product like yeah. ours. Like it's not it's not sort of necessarily easy to do. I see all kinds of things. I see people putting their own like, you know, home built YubiKey uh, infrastructure onto specific machines. But for the most part, um, you know, you don't necessarily see the MFA there, um, like on the back end. It, it, it is something that's just not like easy to turn on at this time. So uh, anything we haven't, I just want to open the floor for you. Anything we haven't mentioned that that you wanted to talk about? I, I know you mentioned that uh, you just publicized your raise today, which uh, while you were talking, I added to our show notes for the new segment, <laughs> which is coming up next. Um, but a- anything else that we missed that you really wanted to uh, uh, to put out there? Yeah, I mean, I guess, thank you for asking. I, I guess I think I'm very excited right now um, about the whole direction that, that this is taking and the industry is taking. I think that there is um, a, a big thing that's happening, at least amongst, amongst smaller companies and companies that have kind of grown organically. Um, which is a confluence of several things. First of all, a lot of organizations are growing very, very quickly right now, like doubling their number of engineers or onboarding a lot of engineers or bringing in teams from abroad that are now accessing sort of their backend. So it's it's much harder to control who has access to what in your backend these days. Um, and the other thing that's happening is just this sort of explosion of, of ransomware, which sort of chilled out a little bit recently. But in, in any case, it, it's still you know an issue when you think about open ports, SSH, things like RDP, things like VPN credentials, like that is something that cloud teams and security teams worry about a lot. So you've got this like confluence of like growth to engineering teams um, and risk associated with the, the access that engineering teams have. And so what's happening right now, I see is that a lot of, you know, a lot of people who are charged with managing the backend and the security of the backend don't really know what's going on and who's logging in and how they're getting in and what they're doing when they're logging in, right? And so that's the type of thing that you typically solve with a PAM, like with a privilege access management system and things that most smaller companies don't have. So I actually think it's it's a really great time for this sort of category that's being created 
Um, because just having a VPN in front of your infrastructure isn't really enough if you don't know what your engineers are doing once they've gotten past the, the VPN, right? There's just sort of too much risk there. Um, and so I've talked to a lot of teams lately about like, how do you get better handle on that? How do you get visibility into what people are doing? How do you control what people are doing? And, and not just sort of like have this blindness of like what's going on in your back end, because that's like the worst thing if you're if you're supposed to be managing the security of the back end. Yeah, yeah. No, th this is all good stuff. Uh, I also want to mention that uh, you do have a free version of your product up to three users, 10 remote servers, it says here. So I, I like that yeah. you have a free tier because this is exactly the the kind of thing I like to uh, running a couple labs, uh, you know, between a couple uh, people here. Me, me and Tyler have even done some stuff together uh, between our labs. Th th this is very handy for that kind of use case, you know, I think uh, uh, on the smaller end of things. But um, yeah, yeah, no, that this is all this is all great. Thanks so much for joining us on Enterprise Security Weekly today, Sharon. Thank you. All right, and we'll be back in a few moments with the weekly enterprise news. Picture your team being able to map out the external attack surface as it grows and see the same attack vectors as a hacker does. Most tools out there do asset discovery, but stop there. Enter Detectify. It takes an inventory of exposed web assets and automates vulnerability testing for security misconfigurations, expiring subdomains, and risks in third-party software. Here's the cool part. They crowdsource payloads from leading ethical hackers. It finds bugs you actually want to fix and finds them in time. Start a free two-week trial by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash Detectify. Go hack yourself. Attacks can't be prevented, but they can be stopped. Modern cyber attackers have already made it inside your network, but you have the upper hand. Find and eradicate threats with extra hop network detection and response and shut them out before real damage is done. Learn the advanced techniques attackers are using and how extra hop stops them with a live attack simulation. Register at securityweekly.com forward slash extra hop. That's extra H-O-P. CyberGRX brings a revolutionary approach to third-party cyber risk management. Using sophisticated data analytics, real-world attack scenarios, and real-time threat intelligence, CyberGRX provides a complete portfolio analysis of a company's third-party ecosystem, helping the world's leading businesses prioritize their risks and make smart decisions. Interested in learning more? Head over to securityweekly.com forward slash CyberGRX and demo the world's biggest third-party exchange. Welcome back to Enterprise Security Weekly. Join us March 10th for our next Security Weekly Unlocked webcast for an intro to KQL queries. To register, visit securityweekly.com forward slash webcasts. Don't forget to check out our library of on-demand webcasts and technical trainings at securityweekly.com forward slash on-demand uh, with our very own Tyler Robinson. And um, um, his name was just there. I missed it. <laughs> Darwin Salazar. Thank you. Uh, voice in my ear, helping helping my memory. Now for the Enterprise Security Weekly News. So you can follow along if you want with the stories that we're going to be talking about today. You can go to securityweekly.com forward slash ESW263 and you can see all the, uh, the news stories that are fit for discussion this week. And uh, less stories than usual, uh, just a few fundings here, but some interesting ones. Uh, first one here, Blue Voyant uh, raises a quarter billion dollars 
which puts it in unicorn territory, makes it makes the latest unicorn in in security. And it's a Series D, and it's it's interesting because they're they kind of remind me of like an Arctic wolf, where they're halfway between a services firm and a and a software firm. So I thought this one was kind of kind of interesting. Tyler, do you know these guys at all? Have you heard of them? I've heard of them before. They they bolt on um, other tools uh, to their professional services. So it is it is very interesting. They almost remind me of I don't know maybe like a security onion or something. So are they are they white labeling other companies' products or are, they, are these their own IP? Um, they have proprietary technology in there, uh, but I I know they do bolt on other tools and they leverage other stacks for insight. And I think that's to provide an insight into their for their professional services. Uh, they they say it right there in the article. They say a mix of proprietary technology, third party best in class tools, and professional services. Yeah, I think it's uh. interesting. You know, we've talked about this before about these companies that I think we traditionally kind of think of as services companies raising money and being valued somewhere in between like a software tech startup and a and a services company. So it's an interesting trend, I think. Yeah, but I think I'm, it helps. I'm, I'm not sure I, I really agree with like, I, I see why a lot of companies are there and there's a lot of tech and a lot of innovation to be had and there's a lot of problems to solve in security. But along those lines, like a lot of the really creative things that some of the smaller companies are doing, they get bolted onto these big companies or they get bought to disappear them, you know, fold them in and, mm-hmm. and wipe the tech. Like I think we see less good innovation as part of a lot of these acquisitions and maybe that's the goal of some of these places, but they're still doing cool and interesting stuff that I think would add more to the industry if we had less big snatch-ups where these big companies are able to leverage this unicorn money to make someone not hesitate to say yeah. Yeah. I think a company like like Blue Voyant, they're trying to be almost like an MSSP on steroids. Um, So the innovation might be slightly less important to a company like that, the, the native innovation versus the types of services they can offer to companies who may not want or be able to manage their own security in-house. Yeah, a lot like, like I think, a crowd strike or a secure works or something like that. That makes a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. I, I think um, if that's how you see these guys, Katie, I, I think a lot of the MSSPs are taking steroids these days. Like, well, this see, round is certainly on steroids. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're seeing a lot of these firms kind of, uh, and we're actually going to talk about this even outside of security. You know, I, I think in general, you know, business investment and, and growth, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing both investors and some of these uh, startups uh, more willing to break outside of boundaries and explore um, different stuff. Like, for example, here, um, they have an MDR service, they've got traditional professional services, but then on the software side, they have this digital risk management piece, which is, uh, you know, I guess kind of like a, uh, like a, a risk IO, which is now part of, uh, Microsoft and then, uh, a third party risk management, uh, offering, you know, so it's just kind of like this, like, I'm not sure how all these things fit together, except that they all make the money, you know, and I, I, with a $250 million round and, you know, having services in there, I, I'd assume they have some pretty decent uh, ARR. 
you know, certainly over some of the software startups we've seen with, you know, where we know they've barely got 10 million ARR and they've got like this multi-billion dollar valuation. You know, I, I would expect it, the multiple to be lower here, but the actual revenue to be much higher. Yeah. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, so moving on, uh, Balbix announced, announces a $70 million Series C. And uh, so cybersecurity posture automation. They, they ring a bell here, but um, there's a couple firms with uh, similar names that I get, I get mixed up here. But, um, yeah, so it looks like they're doing some asset management. Um, I don't know if this pops up on competitive Intel for you, Katie. Um, but it looks like they're trying to predict the, the likelihood, like the amount of risk uh, for, for different assets within your organization, which is, you know, I, I wonder how accurate something like that can be. So this wouldn't be a one-to-one -one competitor. They could actually, in fact, be a great adapter or connector um, because, yes, it's, they do look at assets and asset inventory, but their focus is more on the assessment of what's going on with assets than the assets themselves. And, and there is an aspect of vulnerability management that is in, inherent in asset management as well. But this is really, from my understanding and from what I know, uh, talking with their CEO a couple of years ago, it's really about looking at where the risk vectors are versus you know actual inherent vulnerabilities. And most asset management tools are looking for that more foundational level and not trying to predict risk. And this is looking at that risk level. So it's it's tangential, there is some overlap, but it wouldn't be a one-to-one. -one. Um, you know, this, this is looking at internal, it's looking at external, it's looking at, you know, what types of risk, risk factors you have to think about when you're trying to decide what to do uh, with your assets versus, um, you know, here here's a vulnerability, or here's how the assets connect. It's it's more on that back end than on the front end. Right, right. And like like we were talking about in our first interview with with Karen. Uh, you know, I think she mentioned the importance of uh, reducing complexity, and and you know, part of that is prioritizing things. You know, and certainly with any any tool like this, any kind of asset management tool or and any tool with management in the name, whether it be vulnerability management, asset management. You know, you end up with this giant pile of data, you know, and just struggling to to figure out, you know, what's actionable and what to what to address first. Right. This is very focused on risk quantification um, from my understanding. And again, it's been a little while since I've really looked with them, but mm -hmm. they, you know, they were nice, smart people. This looks like a great round to help advance uh, their company and their platform. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Maybe when we talk in six or 12 months from now, I'll be singing a different tune. Yeah. Yeah. That series C money, uh, certainly gonna, gonna put that to work. Um, our next one here is an interesting one. Scope security. Um, I'm assuming because it's healthcare related, you know, this might be kind of like like a double meaning thing, like stethoscope and uh, scope is in like awareness or visibility. 
Yeah, my, so, my father was a, a colon and rectal surgeon, so scope means something else. So don't go there. <laughs> you already went there. The picture's already yeah, in my mind. Thanks. I did. I had to because when I hear scope, it's not stethoscope. You giggle when you hear scope. <laughs> you don't think mouthwash. Mouthwash. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yuck, no. Opposite. <laughs> All right, Quite back literally. on track. Um, I, always, I always kind of get uh, a little nervous when I see um, cybersecurity offerings that are kind of like vendor, or not, not vendor, sorry, vertical specific for something that has really more of a solved problem in the in the common space, like, you know, CrowdStrike, but for healthcare like what's wrong with using crowdstrike in healthcare like why why are you reinventing this thing you know and it, it it makes me wary that uh you know by going after one vertical specifically you know may, maybe companies end up with a you know less and i i don't know anything about the company i don't know anything about the product you know but um you know i wonder if it's if it's trying to boil the ocean um, you know, and sell specifically to healthcare when maybe you might be better off getting some, you know, more, more mainstream, uh, uh, products in there. So I don't, I don't know your, your thoughts on that. Either of you, Tyler, Katie. Well, they, they say here, you know, that they're solely focused on the healthcare ecosystem. And when I think of this and I'd love to learn more because I don't know enough about this company, but when I think of healthcare ecosystem and the idiosyncrasies that are inherent in it, it's not about access to EHRs. Mm -hmm. It's right. about, you know, that, like you said, the actual device technology. So I'd, I'd love to learn what, what this actually means. You know, Mike Murray, who um, is the head of this, he's had some great success in the past. Uh, so that certainly speaks well, but I don't think I quite understand where the gaps would be for access to and security of records. Yeah, when, I, I mean, when I look at, and Tyler, you tell me if you see the same thing, but when I look at attacks against, um, you know, healthcare organizations, they look like attacks against pretty much everything else. I don't, I don't see attackers really switching up their MO just because it's a hospital or something like that. No, they're definitely not doing that. And I think one of the critical aspects of maybe why this is a, an interesting pivoter or vertical they're tackling is because it's usually never the adversaries. Hospitals are easy because it's always about safety. It's always about quick access. It's always about getting information and data quickly to the people that need it, which is usually everybody in order to, to make good, safe decisions. Uh, the problem you run into is with inside of these environments, they're not able to configure certain things or have security protocols or do things in, in a way in which other organizations are. So the security stance and means by which they go about securing the data, securing systems, securing uh, databases, servers, all those things uh, isn't different and isn't changed. It just is open. And so I think if they can address the issues around you know, making sure that safety's still there, making sure hospital equipment can communicate, making sure there's no uh, latency, uh, maybe even some of the segmented networks around really legacy systems that can't be updated. Like all of those things that are very specific to the healthcare and hospital industry and still have it work with inside of like a, an EHR or, or EMR and have those pieces all tie together 
maybe they'll be on to something, but I've not seen anybody tackle that problem and do it very successfully. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, sort of the latency, whether or not it's one push on your phone or whatever the case may be, a lot of people in the healthcare field object to. Although it's adding a layer of security, they want access to records immediately. They don't want to take any other steps. They don't, you know, their 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 concern is the patient and patient care. And so that security, there's a lot more pushback on that. So, so very valid point. And if there's some way to eliminate that, and if that's what this company is doing, that would be great because you're always going to be, you know, uh, that fight between immediate access and security mm -hmm. is always going to be in play in this sector. But then when the ransomware hits, it's really hard to access the information. It is very, very hard, you know, and then when you have to start rerouting patients because you can't send them in, you can't access their records, that really puts a damper on a lot of things, yeah. At, you, you can't see their dosages, you can't uh, do any imaging, you know, like, like you know, really kind of... Uh, um, Really, kind of like like there's no going to paper for a lot of this stuff. Like, uh, you, if you need imaging of, of someone's, you, you know, uh, abdomen or something like that, like like there's no paper solution for that. Like, you need the computer to work so you can use the equipment. So, yeah, yeah, that that's that's a tough one, you know. I think, and if they can help, more power to them. You know, I I just get a little bit nervous when I see kind of like like a solved problem in the market, you know, being tackled and repackaged and re relabeled as special for just healthcare, or just for bankers or something like that. So I don't know, you know, anything that can help hospitals more, more power to them if it does. Um, the next one uh, I added during our last interview, uh, you know, during our last interview found out that uh, Dr. Sharon Goldberg, CEO, co-founder at Bastion Zero uh, announced some, I believe it's seed funding. Yeah, $6 million in seed funding. And um, yeah, led by Dell Technologies Capital with participation from Akamai. That's it's, uh, interesting. And what she was describing, very topical, very interesting. You know, I literally saw a really long thread uh, discussing this kind of problem uh, just uh, like a week or two ago. Probably don't need to discuss that in any further detail. We, we got a whole interview on it. Uh, if you missed that interview, you know, it should be uh, one step back in your podcast player or in your uh, YouTube playlist. Um, let's see. So a couple of trends links here. We don't really need to dive deep into these, um, but there's uh, Security Week has this really useful post they put out. Um, they've got a lot of content on M&A. Uh, and they usually do a roundup for every month, and they they list every single raise within the previous month, uh, and total it up for you. And it was uh, thirty five deals in February twenty twenty two, and it's Ed Edward Kovacs. I, I hope I'm saying that right. Who does all these? So he does an amazing job uh, putting all these together. He reported on over four hundred and thirty uh, mergers and acquisitions last year. So. He's a busy guy over there at Security Week. And then we've got uh, Crunchbase, I, I think was, uh, I, I'm assuming this is new, 
because I haven't seen it before, but maybe they were jealous of the uh, unicorn list over at, um, oh boy, now I'm going to blank on the, uh, um, what is it, Insights. Help me out, Katie. <laughs> What's that other crunch base oh. like? Uh, Yes. Market Insights? CB no. Insights? CB Insights. Thank you. Thank you, Katie. <laughs> the minute you uh, yeah. say something like that, everybody's brain freezes up. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's funny because the, you know, the, the short version, you know, they have in their fave icon right there for Crunchbase is CB. So you'd think CB Insights would be part of Crunchbase, but they're actually competitors. Um, right. But yet yeah, now Crunchbase it's has its own unicorn board. Yeah. Yeah, very good <laughs> SEO. Everybody wants to know about the the unicorns. And uh, yeah, I, I guess they both, when they advertise as CB, they both get benefits from that. But um, yeah, I, I'm still going to say I like the CB Insights one better because all the companies are categorized and they're not categorized in the Crunchbase version. Uh, maybe they are if you're a subscriber. I mean, I'd say almost definitely they are if you're a subscriber, but... Uh, I, I can get them categorized for free from CB Insights. So little little inside tip here from Security Weekly. <laughs> Makes it really easy just uh, if you want to see a list of the cybersecurity startups, they have a category for cybersecurity startups on CB Insights version of this. And uh, you can just click the sort button and it, and it sorts them all for you. It's nice. Um, I mentioned going outside, you know, talking about trends in tech in general. Epic Games bought uh, the the service Bandcamp, which is is basically a marketplace where, you know, kind of like Spotify, like anybody can put music up on on Spotify. You know, they don't have to go through a label or anything like that. Except Bandcamp is kind of specifically been a lot more. Uh, community focused. You know, they even have a Bandcamp Friday, I think they call it, where they forego their cut of of the sales of uh, of music on their platform, and the the creators get a hundred percent of that. So uh, I'm thinking, you know, either you know it could be one of two things or both of the two things. Either Epic Games, you know, kind of the whole metaverse kind of move here. You know, we're just seeing gaming companies and tech companies kind of diversifying into different areas here. And then the other side of it is Epic Games has been very outspoken against uh, Apple's 30% of everything. You know, we take 30% of everything model, uh, you know, taking them to court on that, took Fortnite off, uh, you know, all that over over that battle. So Bandcamp, you know, the philosophy there about paying creators, you know, the, the maximum amount, treating them like people. Uh, in, instead of uh, revenue stats, uh, you know, really fits in with their with their philosophy. Yeah, I think it's super interesting. Like, I am, I am a little surprised. Like, I think you're spot on. Like, either they're trying to give a, a big finger and kind of come up with a competitor to to Apple's platform and how they offer music, or they're going to integrate that into the game, right? Like, I could see independent community integrations where it didn't make sense for them to be able to sell or integrate. Uh, local community bands or or musicians into Fortnite as like a, a music or an emote or you know whatever they they play that's inside of the game, and that would be hard to do in the market. So they're just going to integrate those two things, which would be really interesting. I'm surprised we've not seen an NFT spin up or some sort of like you said metaverse where character like they already have a great marketplace for skins, emotes, mm -hmm. accessories for the game characters. Like I'm surprised they weren't the first to kind of hop into 
kind of the whole minting and, and exclusive offering of some of that. They already do that in their platform to an extent where, you know, some things are only offered if you played in a certain season or a certain rarity. There's only so many of them. So I'm, I'm curious to see where they start to, to spin up and put more energy into things. Yeah, I, I definitely think we need to see more of that as opposed to like a crypto startup uh, or exchange saying that they're going to build a game. Like that's generally that doesn't end well. Like the <laughs> either it's not a very fun game or, you know, they don't know how to make a game or, you know, people just play the game as an investment tool, which now again, they're not playing for the fun of the game. So I don't, I don't think every, anybody's really figured that out very well yet. You know, I've seen some cases where um, fans of the game have wanted NFTs, you know, stuff like that included. And then, cases where they announced they were going to do it and then fans of the game shouted them down and they reversed the decision. So really interesting to see. And, and, and what the main reason I bring some of these non-security specific uh, trends uh, in, into the news here is because at the, you know, the, the folks running these companies, investing in these companies, you know, I, I think a lot of these trends you do see across, uh, you know, different types of products, different markets. You know, a lot of the trends that we see in cybersecurity, maybe start somewhere else, maybe start on the tech side, maybe start in other industries. And it gives us, I, I think it gives us some insight into, uh, you know, what you might be seeing, especially in the merger and acquisition space. All right, moving on. Um, Palo Alto, you know, who, you know, has been very busy with, uh, you know, they, they rebranded their stuff. Uh, everything's Cortex now. They've got Cortex XOR, which used to be Domisto. You know, they got Cortex XDR. They coined the term XDR. Um, and I, I guess, it, you know, now Prisma, you know, they acquired a bunch of companies, put together Prisma. And as far as I can tell, um, I haven't gone super deep on this. You know, this might be another product like XDR that they built entirely uh, on the inside. You know, I, I don't think I saw any acquisitions, you know, that that uh, contributed to this. But Cortex XSIAM. I don't know if I'm supposed to pronounce that, but it's uh, intended as a as a SIM competitor or a SIM disruptor, perhaps. I thought I thought that's what. XEDR was supposed to be doing too. No, so so they're very specific about. So I spent a lot of time with XDR products, and they're very specific about like like you want to refrain from shoving all your events, all your uh, intel into your XDR product. Uh, you you want to put in just enough to have a uh, good signal, and you know I think generally the best practice there is if, if you shove too much into it, you'll you'll destroy that product's. XDR's ability to, uh, uh, you know, to to do good detection. So it's, um, you know, the difference with a SIM is, like, give me everything just in case I need it, you know, whereas XDR is give me just enough that I can uh, detect attacks uh, very quickly, if not in real time and with automated responses. So the use cases, I think, are, are slightly different, but... You're right, Tyler. They, I think they do overlap somewhat. Yeah, I mean, more visibility is always better. It just is at some point, like, let's just get our visibility right 
and kind of call it something so we know what to help clients uh, attach to. <laughs> Otherwise, it's kind of all like rolling the dice to figure out what integrates, what doesn't, what logs you're going to get, what good visibility you have, what you don't have. Uh, and then you have to bolt a bunch of products together to make it all cover a good portion of what you need. Well, and the irony here is I think a big part of the inspiration for XDR is Sim's inability to solve that problem. You know, that like XDR wouldn't exist if Sim had done a, a good job uh, with uh, helping, uh, you know, defenders with detection and response. So you have to be really well-intentioned here, you know, and we've seen a lot of XDR players that, th that throw a lot of humans into the mix. You know, they've got teams, detection engineers, uh, professional services helping make sure customers deploy these products correctly. Because uh, if you don't, you just end up with just another, you know, a, a, another failed product here, you know, that, that becomes ripe for disruption, which, you know, I think a lot of SIM, a lot of traditional SIM is and has been for a while. Uh, but, you know, we got to make sure what we're replacing it with isn't, uh, isn't more shelfware. Right. I think that, you know, the one thing that they said here was this is offered at 50% off what you would consider a, a traditional SIM. And for a lot of companies, that's going to be really attractive because a lot of the SIMs out there are really expensive and it's really hard. Um, so, so that's certainly, that part's certainly attractive at least. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly you know, if you're a Palo Alto customer, you know, you've already got two or more Palo Alto products. Makes a whole lot of sense to give this a look, you know, maybe do a POC. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the next one here, Infra, the open source identity engine. Very interesting. Couldn't tell a whole lot about it. Uh, kind of some of what Dr. Sharon Goldberg was talking about uh, rings, uh, rings in here but there's just not enough details to understand exactly what they're doing. You know, so it, it looks like it's very much folk, uh, you know, selling to the DevOps engineers, the cloud engineers, uh, you know, looking to uh, replace the password, replace, you know, kind of bring SSO to, to admin workflows maybe. But mm -hmm. uh, it, it's, it's very early. You know, I, th I think, uh, I don't think it was, uh, I don't think they even have a seed round announced yet so this is very early days for them i just heard somebody talking about them the other day and threw them in here so mostly just being teased at this point um so standards here it's interesting so so the same company that's behind the beloved sig which uh, i'm sure katie you have probably run into at some point uh, on the vendor side, I think if you're anywhere near sales and marketing, you end up helping fill out these uh, third-party vendor management questionnaires, and uh, very, very much a a market that that uh, yeah, another one ripe for disruption that that really needs to be fixed. But uh, that same company came up with the the SIG, which is a you know, essentially a spreadsheet, you know, but a standardized list of questions that you can ask has tried to standardize uh, the taxonomy around uh, third-party 
monitoring and and uh, vendor management. So that's a thing that you can uh, you can click this link. You can go download it, and it's a fairly detailed uh, taxonomy list of you know the the different terms and the different things you know that you want to put potentially in a questionnaire. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I would like to see a lot of these questionnaires updated. I'm just reading through this one. It seems better. But the questions that get asked are ones that it, it's always uh, quantitative, right? It, it's not really qualitative there in, in what they're asking. And you can answer it in one of two ways, usually, which you can phrase in a way that is not lying, but is also not getting out what they need to know. And <laughs> yeah. to know <laughs> I saw a cartoon the other day and it was, uh, what, what do I put for this question on the vendor questionnaire? And, and like the response was just, just yes to everything. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, some funny responses to that. I saw, you know, I, I think that resonated with some folks, but, um, yeah, it's tough. It, it's, it's definitely a tough market. Like, you know, we have to build these trust relationships between businesses, you know, but at the same time, uh, Businesses are very sensitive with sharing how not secure they are, <laughs> and rightfully so, I guess. Um, yeah. Especially yeah, so if it's for procurement or cyber insurance or one of those things that they have a yeah. uh, inherent mechanism that they want to get done. Yeah. All right. Two more stories here. Zane Lackey joins Andreessen Horowitz as a general partner. So very, very interesting seeing um, uh, cybersecurity founders and CISOs move into the, the VC space. Uh, we saw this once before, and I'm going to blank on at least part of his name, but the uh, OpenDNS, I believe David, um, I think he was also, he was involved at Andreessen Horowitz. I don't know if he was a GP, but uh, I'm Googling live. Look out. It's slow. David, uh, I can't even pronounce that. Ulovich? But um, yeah, he sold OpenDNS to Cisco. And uh, yes, he was also a general partner. So uh, certainly not the first here, but an interesting trend, you know, especially that both of them went into A16Z. Uh, that's, that's very interesting. So. Yeah, assuming we'll see a lot more security and tech investments coming from A16Z with the, uh, both of them involved. Yeah, those are those are some big players and, and names. Like it's not their first rodeo. I am curious to see. Like sometimes, is it just you want to do the next thing, start up the next big idea, or did the idea spawn first and you're going to do something with that idea between people you trust? Like I think those are two completely different companies with completely different outcomes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, moving on to our squirrel story. I have to prepare a little bit for this. I have to jump into the metaverse. <laughs> wow. Okay. Okay, I'm not sure I even so understood the squirrel story. Just to be clear, I watched that video and I... I, maybe I'm a Luddite, but I was like, why? What? I don't understand what this is and how does it work. 
Yeah, so apparently you can create fields that you can feel using ultrasonic sound. Like, I, so I assume, like, it's very limited because it's all coming from one direction. It's coming from something that you set on a table, and it can push stuff out, you know, in, you know, maybe doesn't look like even 180 degrees, you know, but um, depending on how the frequencies of that sound, like, I, I don't understand how the technology works, you know, but they can create the feeling of an object. Um, I mean, I, I don't know what your first impression is. I get it. Right, right. So you can feel things, you know, like, like it can create shapes that you can feel. And like my first thought was, you know, what is the early software going to look like, look for this and exactly how uh, depraved is it going to be? <laughs> and this, this is, this is the golden stitch. This is where VR porn then comes into uh, reality. And this is probably the first time we'll see porn probably be one of the first VR things that, that leverages these kind of technologies, whether, you know, we've seen, we've seen similar adult yep. things have done this and correlated it with visualization. So I don't know, like this sounds, this sounds like this could be really fun to abuse and maybe cause, you know, potential harm through, but you know, it's just sound. So unless you're able to me make it do frequencies, it's not supposed to, or break someone's eardrums mm. or you know, cause a bow. Oh, I didn't even really think of that. Yeah. He's like, there's some cool things you can do with sound, but uh, I see this being uh, the first step in many for hepatic feedback with inside of a VR or AR. Yeah, th there are militaries that have sonic weapons. That That is definitely a thing. So abuse cases are certainly something I hope are being considered with, like, even Kickstarter projects. And, and you know, maybe not because – so it looks like they've been working on this for a long time. Somewhere here, they, they show the first version of it, which was, like, the size of a mini fridge. You know, now they've gotten it down to this really nice, compact, two-inch thick uh, kind of slab that you put on a table – they say the size of a 13-inch laptop. Uh, but, yeah, hopefully they're thinking about that kind of stuff because, let, let's be honest, like at this stage, the software support probably isn't going to be there. There's going to be a few good demo apps, I think. I, I don't expect to see a ton of adoption. Okay, since 2016. So they, they've been doing it for a good uh, six years now. But, um, yeah, it's... Don't expect more than like a really interesting gimmick or demo of what the future could be like to show off to friends. You know, I don't see anybody using this in a Zoom meeting on a daily basis or anything like that. I mean, a Zoom meeting, you're going to what, slap someone or like, you know. Get some <laughs> that would be a great use case for it. But see, see, like it's so directional though that you have to reach out over it like you would need two of them you would need one on the table and one mounted on the wall in front of you to get slapped properly see i, I foresee the, them making a pad that you stand on that then pushes things up and around you oh or maybe boy a, a three page i don't know <laughs> yeah I, I i mean this is definitely one of those things where i'm of two minds you know on on, on the one hand I want to make fun of it and, and laugh about it. You know, on the other hand, like, yeah, I want to try it out. Like, uh, I'll admit, like, you know, the first time I tried VR, which, you know, <laughs> I put this thing on jokingly, but I, I don't think I've charged or used this thing in like a year. 
So I, I don't regret the purchase, though. You know, the Oculus Quest is is a great price if you just want to see what the fuss is all about. You want to try it out. Um, so I'm, I'm not disappointed that I don't use it more. But uh, I, I do like to try this stuff out, you know, because it's it's different reading about it, you know, especially with metaverse VR type stuff than actually exper- experiencing it. So especially if I'm going to make fun of it, I want to use it first and then make fun of it. All right. I mean, if they want to other- send a free trial, no, nobody will. I don't think anybody on this call would uh, object to that. I'll, I'll back the project and uh, and just mail it around. Like everybody will get like a month with it or something. <laughs> we can just go in on one, maybe. Or not. <laughs> I'm right, thinking uh, a month for me might be too long. Tyler, Tyler might be more into into it. I don't know. I really want to see what kind of offensive capabilities I can make this thing do. Yeah, Tyler's got a completely different uh, plan for this thing. You're going to see it mounted like a mobile version of it, mounted on his chest, like knocking his kids <laughs> off their feet. <laughs> and I'm going to hide it in a like, coffee table Get out or a lot of virtual aggression. Yeah, have it in a coffee table and just have it like randomly your coffee just vibrates off the table every day at the same time. <laughs> Ghosts, <laughs> there you go. You, you can make a good haunted house with uh, with a, a set of these. There you go. Oh, you could. You could. You could make. You could make them fill it. <laughs> you could make. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. You absolutely could. You could make somebody really believe in ghosts w- with some of these cleverly hidden in a haunted house. 100%. I think you nailed it, Tyler. Haunted house coming up. <laughs> oh boy all right thanks so much katie and tyler for joining me today really appreciate uh you jumping in tyler uh last minute oh. thanks katie absolutely see you next week and a big thanks to everyone watching or listening to this week's episode of enterprise security weekly security weekly ghost house is coming soon see you next time